You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Romans 8 and verse 18. There's a phrase that I like to use as I share the gospel, and some of you are going to recognize the phrase um, because I also like to share it when um, offering counsel and probably a lot of you have heard me say this one-on-one you have this the phrase applying the gospel to a particular problem we've got to learn to apply the gospel to particular problems and um, you know the the gospel is not just the power of God for restoring our relationship um, with God it's uh it's much more than that. It's uh, The gospel is the power of God for sustaining and growing in our faith, isn't it? And I say this by way of introduction because there are many people who believe that we need the gospel to come to Christ, and then after that we kind of like graduate from the gospel. And um, um, I, I knew that was the case. You know, a few years ago when I was teaching at the seminary, teaching a, a, a couple of homiletics preaching courses, and um, I shared with the class uh, that, listen, I want to hear the gospel in your messages. And if I don't hear the gospel in your messages, your grade's going to reflect that I didn't hear the gospel in your messages. And I, I, I emphasize that, emphasize that, emphasize that. And one young man, tried, he, he tried me out on that. He, um, he, he went into the chapel and he preached a message. And there was some fine things said in his message, but... He didn't apply the gospel to it. And uh, the interesting thing about it was that part of the, the class involved, uh, you know, you would preach and your classmates would have a, a evaluation sheet and they would take and they would, they would, uh, they had some criteria that they were looking for in the sermon. And, and uh, then the following class, um, you, you, you would be kind of evaluated, not just by the instructor, but also by the students. And, the, the classmates just ganged up on him and uh, said, hey, you didn't preach the gospel. And uh, he rejected their criticism and even rejected my criticism as I challenged him on it. He just couldn't believe that it was appropriate to preach the gospel in a mature audience such as the seminary. And um, that is false. It's simply not true. Before we get to our text, I just want to show you. And this, these are the verses I used to prove my case with him. And with the class, if you turn back to Romans 1, you know, Paul here is is writing to who? He's writing to the church that's in Rome. He's writing to believers who are in Rome, right? Uh, He's writing to a, a group of people that have already come to faith, correct? And what does he say in verse 15? He says, I'm eager to do what? Anyone. Preach the gospel. He's eager to preach the gospel. Paul is preaching the gospel. You know, this is a missionary letter that we're studying here. I haven't said much about it, but we're going to get to that here in a little bit. Paul is trying to set himself up so he can go to Spain. And this is a missionary letter that he writes here. But in this missionary letter, he's preaching the gospel. And the point is, we need the gospel. We never outgrow the importance of the gospel. Our growth is for our growth, it's imperative that we learn 
how to apply the gospel. The gospel applies to marriage issues. It applies to family dysfunction. It applies to raising children, which is the most difficult thing we do under the sun, is it not? Can anybody think of a task more difficult than raising children? Uh-uh. And if you can, you ain't raised no children. <laughs> That's a rough calling, man. We got some young parents who are just getting started. And I don't want to go gloom and doom on you here. It's wonderful, you know. It's wonderful. It's all wonderful. You know, those teenage years, oh my. There are these creatures. They come from outer space or someplace. I don't know where they come from. And, and they call them teenagers, you know. But it's all good, you know. It's all good. Um, the gospel applies to that. It applies to rebellious children. It applies to work issues. It applies to finances. And one of the mo- one powerful application of the gospel is suffering. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. How does the gospel apply to suffering? And my answer is the gospel provides us with power to face suffering. It's the power to face suffering. Now, with that introduction in mind, let's turn to our text. Let's look at verse 18. Romans 8 and verse 18. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Let's call on the Lord and ask Him for His his help, shall we? Heavenly Father, we look to you with this text before us. And Father, we ask that you would be pleased to show us, Father, how uh, this text applies to our lives. Show us, O Father, the truths. Show us why you've given us this text. Meet us where we are, O Father, and teach us. And uh, Father, uh, apply your your word. Apply your voice. Apply your truth, O Lord, to our hearts. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen and amen. Now, many of you know that I love blues music, don't you? Uh, I, I've, I've liked uh, blues music for many, many years. And one of the things I like about blues music is it doesn't act like pain doesn't exist. It doesn't just sing, oh, happy, happy, everybody's happy, everything's wonderful, Life is just a bowl of whatever you like in your bowl, you know. Um, and that's just what life is, you know. It's just, blues doesn't do that, does it? You know, blues really uh, acknowledges that there's injustice, there's oppression, there's, uh, there's pain, there's uh, tragedy, there's violence, there's all of these things that we, that we encounter. It, it doesn't even pretend that the devil doesn't exist. I mean, you'll hear, there's a lot of blues songs that, that uh, uh, very much embraces uh, the presence of the evil one. Um, uh, and good blues music really speaks to these hurts uh, and pains in life. And the interesting thing about blues music is it does it whether there are lyrics or not. You know, you, 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 you take a certain chord structure, and when you hit certain notes against that chord structure, you can... You can do this beboppy thing that sounds really joyous and can almost sound like a gospel blues. Uh, you can play other notes that that sound like a weep and a cry. Um, 
in, in the hands of a really capable musician, uh, they can actually make the instruments actually weep and, and cry. Um, but what the blues is really largely about is these other notes that you play against the chords that create this tension. You know, it creates this tension, and this tension builds and builds and builds. And then there are other notes that you can that you can play, and it just releases all of that tension. And um, this is life. As we go through life, it's life. It's so realistic because we can we can be going along just fine, and then the phone rings. And all this tension comes into our lives. And what are we looking for as soon as that tension shows up? We're looking for relief. We're looking for release, aren't we? Some would say that the blues is nothing but the devil's music. It's barroom noise. And let, let me, I, you know, when I'm, when I'm going to introduce a sermon with blues, I need to qualify it really well here. Um, I'm not endorsing, you know, lustful lyrics here. I'm not endorsing probably most of the theology that you would find in this music. Uh, I listen to it because the theology actually is reflective of what people believe. You learn a lot listening to it. I'm not endorsing it uh, by saying this, um, you know, any more than I would endorse the theology in a lot of what we call so-called Christian music. I wouldn't endorse the theology in much of that either. You know, neither would half of the room. Um, What I'm pointing to here is the hurt and the pain. And it's real and it's everywhere. And when there's no gospel hope, people will eat. They will indeed eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. Um, That's what takes place. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the blues originated in the cotton fields of the South. And suffering is really a large part of what we do. Now, someone might be sitting here this morning saying, well, I'm not really suffering. Everything seems to be pretty well in my life right now. I can kind of check out and think about what we're going to get into after the service. And to that, I would say, listen, suffering, you might not be suffering right now, uh, but you could be only an hour away. And uh, uh, I hope, it would be my hope that you would never experience any suffering. But we all know better, don't we? Some of us have been in those seasons where we didn't have a worry in the world and received those phone calls and everything changed. It has been said that a minister's job is to teach his congregation how to suffer. Uh, And that is such a true statement. Uh, We have to learn how to suffer because we are going to suffer. Uh, That's what we're going to do. Okay. Well, we will learn to suffer as we learn to apply the gospel to suffering. And how does the gospel speak powerfully to suffering? Look at verse 18 again. Paul says, I consider. He has this consideration that he wants to share with us. Okay, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. What Paul's doing here is actually quite simple. He's comparing the here and now uh, with eternity. Uh, He doesn't use the words here and now. He uses this phrase, this present time. This present time. What is this present time? This present time is the time span between Christ's resurrection and his return. 
Uh, it, it applies to us as equally as it applied to the church in Rome to nearly 2,000 years ago. I mean, uh, we are in the present time, are we not? And what is happening in the present time? One thing we could observe is that the church in the West is, is, uh, is really drying up, isn't it? That's, that would be an easy enough observation. The moral compass of our nation is in the tank. The, the hedge of safety that we've enjoyed in this country for so many years is, is coming down. Um, it's, it's really quite easy to look around and find all the problems. You know, we could say the middle class is sh- shrinking. Lying is perfectly acceptable. I've got a list of stuff here I could read to you. Um, you've got your own list. You've got your own observations. I mean, the, this is the age where uh, Christ is invading this world, uh, building his kingdom. And it's also the age in which the evil one is trying to thwart everything that Christ is doing. So we have this cosmic battle that's taking place in this present time. There's a cosmic war that's at play right now. Uh, It's an age where we must battle against sin and death. You know, that battle against sin is an awful struggle, is it not? Battling against temptation and falling to temptation and, 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 and the wounds and the scars that, are, that, that, that come from that and the, knowing that it's a constant battle. It's an age of grief and loss, of anxiety and restlessness, of darkness, tragedy and violence. And in short, we could say it's an age of suffering, isn't it? It's an age of suffering. What Paul is doing in this verse is he's comparing this present age with future glory and this is, I think, where we fall short of being able to apply the gospel to suffering. It's right here, I think. We don't know a whole lot about the word glory. If you look at verse 18 again, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory. Now, if I were to pass out a blank sheet of paper and you were to write down everything you know about this glory that Paul's speaking of, would you need a second sheet of paper? Would you need two sheets of paper? Uh, I have a sneaking suspicion that probably most of us wouldn't need a second sheet of paper. We, We might be thinking, well, what is this glory that's in view here? Well, let's take that question up. What is this what is this glory that's in view here? Some, some take it to mean that it's God's glory. You know, it's God's glory that's going to be revealed to us. It's his, it's his own personal glory. And that indeed is one of the promises of the gospel, isn't it? That we shall see Christ. Uh, we will see God the Father. Uh, we will see the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus tells us, and we learn from John 5 and verse 37, that concerning the Father, Jesus said, His voice you've never heard. He says, His form you've never seen. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God. And there's a number of passages in the Old Testament that teach us that no one may see God and live. You've come across those passages in your reading. They're scattered about in the Old Testament. No one may see him and live. But the great promise to the believer, I mean, this is great. Just sit from, just think with me for a minute. If you're in Christ Jesus, here's one of the great promises that await you in the not so distant future. It's really not that far away. Is that you're going to see him. 
You're going to see Him just like you see me, just like you see each other, just like I see you. You you would be able to touch Jesus. You'd actually be able to touch Him. And you will live. And you will hear His voice. And you will praise and worship Him in the company of the mightiest of angels. I don't know what that'll be like. I mean, some of us are theologically astute enough that you understand from from, um, Hebrews that as we are gathered here right now in worship, we're actually spiritually joining the saints and the angels that are in heaven. We're actually joining in that worship right now. But I can't see them, can you? And I can't hear their voice, can you? But in the not so distant future, you will see them. And you will hear their voices. And they're going to be mighty. And I'm not sure what our voices are going to sound like, but I, I, I don't know what they'll sound like, but I know they're not going to be insignificant. That's a little bit of the glory, isn't it? Here's another thought. I don't know what Moses looks like, but I'm going to see him. If you're in Christ Jesus, you probably don't know what Abraham looks like. I mean, in Sunday school, you got the little Abraham, you know, he's always smiling and happy and everything. I don't know if he looks like that or not. I've never seen him, but you will see him. You know how I'm looking forward to meeting? I want to meet Daniel. He's the one I want to meet, you know. I want to meet them all, you know, but I think it'd be really cool to like go to church on Sunday morning with Daniel. Don't you think that would be cool? I think it'd be really cool. You imagine Daniel sitting next to you? All the saints who've become before us, some of whom are our loved ones who have gone before us, we'll join them. What a thought. That's what some believe is in, is in view here with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And others take this position that what is meant here by glory is the, is the happiness and honor that's in heaven. The happiness and honor that's in heaven. You know, Albert Barnes was one who took that position, for example, that what's meant by glory here is the happiness and honor that awaits in heaven, a happiness and honor of which um, the gospel promises. This this happiness and honor awaits uh, all of God's children. How can you not be honored? Princes and princesses are honored, aren't they? If you're in Christ Jesus, you're a prince or a princess. You, You can't escape that honor. And um, Jesus hasn't done all this stuff and let's work on the cross so that we could be miserable for all eternity. You're not going to be miserable. You're going to be very happy. And you want to know, we're already wired up for this. I, I would challenge you to think of one thing that you do that isn't done to somehow uh, uh, augment your honor and your happiness. I can't think of anything that we do that isn't somehow associated with personal honor and happiness. About everything that we do. I I think that I could say practically everything we do is done for that reason, to be honored and to be happy. We're already wired for that, aren't we? We're already wired for it. I want to offer a couple of insights here. Um, 
just follow along with me, you know, if you will. I mean, the first, the first insight is that in heaven, we're finally going to be free from the threat of tragedy and death. In heaven, we will finally be free. I think this is part of the glory. We'll finally be free of the constant threat of tragedy and death. I mean, there's a weight upon each one of us. And for the most part, we go along, you know, it's kind of like gravity. You know, gravity has a weight on us, you know, and I've never been in an anti-gravitational chamber. I've seen videos of people just kind of floating around. I think it would be cool just for a little while. But suddenly there's no pressure of gravity on you, holding you down. You know, your legs, you know, they could just jump and you float clear to the ceiling. I think that would be pretty cool for a short little period of time. Probably gets old when you're trying to eat your cereal, you know. But um, um, in the same way, there's this pressure, this weight on us. And that pressure and weight is the constant threat that we live under of, of tragedy and, and death. And, um, imagine, um, imagine that weight being removed. I say we live under it because how often do you how often do you pray for protection for yourself and your family? I'm going to guess if you're like me, you're doing it constantly. But suddenly that is removed. There is no reason to do that any longer. Because there's no threat. Death is no more. Blues, you know, music, it creates this tension, you know. And it, it marches to a release. That is a tremendous release, isn't it? To be released from the threat of death and tragedy. Second insight is we'll see Jesus in all his glory. And I have a note here and I, I wrote in my notes, I should have made this the first one. It's too late now. I can't do it now, can I? But I can say I should have made it the first one. Is we're going to see Jesus in all his beauty. We'll see Christ in all his beauty. Again, we're wired up for that. We're already wired up for that. Why do I say that? If you want to sell something, what do you do to it? You know, you've got this dusty old something in the basement and you want to sell it. What do you do? If you're serious about selling it and you want to get what it's worth, what do you do? You shine it up. Well, what would you bother to do that for? Because we're wired up for beauty. We like things to look nice, don't we? For the most part. You know, when I was writing this, my, uh, my little friend, my 16-pound friend Baxter was right next to me. And I was thinking, you know, I love my little 16-pound, 17-pound friend. He's 17 now, I think. He's gained a little bit of weight. One pound for him is a lot, you know. Um, but I was looking at, you know, he doesn't care if things look nice or not, really. That's kind of a difference. I think one of the things of being made in the image of God, you know, is we, aesthetics is really important. We're already wired for aesthetics. We like things that are beautiful. Nothing, there's nothing more beautiful than Christ. If you want to think about beauty, think about Christ. Think about the Father. Think about the Holy Spirit. 
And in glory, we're going to be able to behold him and be able to behold the Father and behold the Holy Spirit. We'll be brought into this this love that exists between the three persons of the Trinity and we'll be able to behold their glory for all eternity. To behold the glory of of Almighty God for all eternity. Um, I think that's part of it. Thirdly, we'll partake of Christ's glory in our glorified bodies. You know, I was um, sharing with Donald and Alex earlier, I think. Um, uh, you know, once upon a time, there was a family sitting here and I'd made mention that salvation is a process. And that comment bothered them a lot. And I ended up going to their home and talking to that comment. And uh, They wanted me to explain how salvation could be a process. And I said, well, I mean, at first I thought they were kind of teasing me. But then when I found they were serious, I was like, well, are are you already perfect? Um, Are you, uh, I mean, did you get a glorious body? And I didn't say this, but I was thinking it. Please say no. You know, salvation isn't complete until we've been made perfect and we've received our glorious bodies. Salvation isn't complete when at some rally somewhere, you come to the front and you say what's called the sinner's prayer, which is what they believed. My salvation is complete. I am in Christ. Well, if you're, if you're trusting in Jesus, you have been brought out of Adam and brought into Christ and you are in union with Christ. And that aspect of it is, is complete. You're in Christ. Got you. But your salvation isn't complete yet. You're still going to have to pilgrimage through this life for whatever time God has providentially given you. And through the course of that time, he is going to work on your progressive sanctification. And you have yet to come to a very important thing, which in Romans 8, we're going to be looking at what's called glorification. You have yet to be glorified. So your salvation, the the new heavens and the new earth have not been consummated yet. You know, we're in a process here. But you see, the glory that awaits us, and next week we're going to be looking at the new heavens and the new earth as we continue in Romans 8. The glory that awaits us is the complete consummation of all these things. It's pretty cool, isn't it? Glorified bodies. Think about, I mean, again, we're wired up for glorified bodies. We're wired up for that. Um, many of you are into exercise and think about how much energy is spent in a gym, you know, trying, uh, trying to take care of our bodies, you know, uh, we're, we're already wired up for that, you know, a glorified body, you know, no more weight watchers, you know, that'd be pretty cool, huh? There's going to be no more weight watchers. There'll be no more gluttony, no more overeating and no more physiological disease that causes weight gain. No more medication that causes weight gain. None of that stuff. Just glorified bodies. Fourthly, we'll suffer sin and temptation no more. I mean, talk about tension and release. Suffering temptation, suffering that. That fight, that battle. You know, all the, all the messages that we talked about in Romans 8, 13, you know, of trying to kill sin in our lives. Won't be no need of that anymore. Talk about tension and release. The fight will be won. The battle will be over. The struggle will be through. What a relief. Amen. 
Well, let's put this together. I think it should be becoming a little bit obvious here. And by the way, when I say some, you know, take the glory to be God's glory and others take the glory to be happiness and honor, I, I, I can't make up my mind which is which, so I'm just going to take both of them, okay? Um, I don't think we need to make that distinction. I think we can say all of the above, you know? I think all of the above. But let's begin to put this together. I think it's kind of obvious how Paul's contrast is making, uh, you know, is, is showing us how the gospel can empower us for suffering. I mean, we've already said our suffering is real. We've said it's painful. And I'm not trying to diminish it by an ounce. Be careful when you come alongside of somebody and you say things like this because you don't want to be misunderstood as trying to diminish anyone's pain. Uh, that can be very hurtful to the person you're trying to help. Uh, but um, what's Paul saying here? He's saying that, listen, this present suffering that you're going through, no matter what it is, is not worth comparing with the glory that awaits. And this is the way I say it. I do not mean to diminish what you're going through, but the present suffering, whatever that might be, Paul tells us, Paul teaches us, it's not worth comparing with the glory that awaits us. You see the, the contrast. Um, this is how Jesus and Paul and all the saints before us have faced suffering, looking to the glory that awaits. I mean, Jesus looked to the glory as he faced suffering. Speaking of Jesus, Hebrews 12, 2 says, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He had his eye on, on eternity. He had his eye on, on the outcome, didn't he? And you read the Gospels, you'll see his eyes were always on that. We're always on that. For the joy that was set before him, his eye was on the joy that was set before him. He endured the greatest suffering anyone has ever suffered or ever will suffer. Again, I will say this sometimes to people, and you've got to be careful saying this, and it's a timing thing. I pray for wisdom. You don't want to just be running around from funeral parlor to funeral parlor and saying, ah, you know, I know your suffering's intense, but Jesus suffered greater suffering than you'll ever suffer. That's not the right time, okay? Um, you, you, you'll be a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. I mean, don't do that. Don't, don't, just don't do that. Um, but the truth of the matter is none of us, some of us could be called to terrible suffering, but none of us will ever suffer like Jesus has. None of us will ever suffer like Jesus has. As per his human nature, his eye was always on eternity. In fact, I like, you know, I was thinking of this earlier. I, you know, you could put it this way. As per his human nature, Jesus' eye was on the gospel. And we usually don't think of Jesus as having his eyes on the gospel, but his eye was on the gospel because he is the gospel. He was accomplishing the gospel. His eye was on the work that God had given him to do, and a large part of the gospel is Christ's person and his what? His work. His eyes were on the gospel. That's a pretty cool thought, isn't it? Paul, he also looked to the glories he faced suffering, and Paul faced extraordinary suffering. He you know, when Paul's called in Acts chapter 9, the Lord sends Ananias to Paul and he says this. He says, I will show him how much he must suffer for, my, for the sake of my name. And the Apostle Paul gives us some insights into his suffering in 2 Corinthians 11. Paul tells us that he endured countless beatings and often near death. He describes it in verses 24 and on. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Can you imagine that? Five times. He received those 
40 lashes less one, 39 lashes with a whip against the back. He received that five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked at night and a day. It was drift at sea on frequent journeys and danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst and often without food and cold and exposure. What a list. Man, when you think you've had a bad day, that's a real bad day. And he knew how to apply the gospel to his suffering. He says in Philippians 3.8, he told the Philippians, quote, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul's eyes were on eternity. Now, I want to be clear when I preach this way, because there's a common sermon out there, and it is really common, and folks love these kinds of sermons. It's probably one of the reasons it's so common. And it goes like this. You take a virtue out of the Bible, like honesty, we'll use for an example. Okay, the Bible calls us to be honest. God hates false balances. The Bible calls us to be honest, so we're going to be honest. And then let's look through history, and let's find some famous dead guy that was really honest, and let's find some some things about their life that we can point to and say, well, such and such, Joe Smith here, he was an honest man, you know, and these are the things that he did, and this is how honest he was. And then we can find a biblical character, and we can do the same thing with the biblical character. And such and such biblical character was really honest, and he's a really honest guy, you know. So then we close and say, listen, we too need to be honest. And then we close in prayer, we sing a song, and we leave. Now, People like that kind of sermon. It doesn't ruffle any feathers. I mean, most of us, unless we're a thief, believe that we should be honest, right? Who's going to say, well, you know, I, I got a problem with that. I mean, even a thief probably doesn't have a problem with that. But by the way, he doesn't want you breaking into his house. He would appreciate it if you're honest. So it doesn't matter if you're Jewish. It doesn't matter if you're Hindu. It doesn't matter what religion or anything you're from. Everybody loves it. It's a great message. And we're all united on it. And we just, you know, everything is wonderful. So it makes for a good message. But here's, here's the problem with it. Um, it's not the gospel. It won't give you the power to follow it. Let, let me try it out with this message because the reason I'm bringing this up to you is my message kind of sounds like that and I don't want it to sound like that. I mean, uh, what have I said so far? I've said, okay, you're going to face suffering in this life if you haven't already. Some of us may face terrible suffering in this life. Um, I haven't brought up any famous guy from history. Um, just didn't think of one, but um, we could. I mean, we could think of plenty actually. Um, and okay, he, this famous guy he suffered terribly. He faced suffering uh, by by looking to eternity. And then there's the Apostle Paul and he faced suffering. You know, he, he, he suffered terribly and he faced it by looking to eternity. And therefore, there's your example. Um, so uh, you can face your suffering by looking to eternity. Let's close in prayer. Donald, Alex, let's, you know, sing our song and um, off we go. In preaching, there's this thing that we call the residual message. Has anybody ever heard that term? The residual message. Okay, the residual message is the message that's left after your message has been preached. If I preach a message like that to you, you're going to probably like it. Sounds good. Um, okay, now I know how I can face suffering. I'm just going to look to eternity. 
Okay. So you go face suffering. You look to eternity. You come back and you say, man, that didn't quite work. So I preach it again. You go out, you face your suffering, and you come back and it didn't quite work. So I preach it again. What is the residual message here? The residual message is try harder. Just go and try harder. You just haven't tried hard enough. And that's not what I'm preaching this morning. If you, if you take this message that way, you're going to come back and you're going to say, this really didn't really work. But, well, it's not what I'm preaching. It's not what I'm trying to preach. And that's not the residual message that I want to leave you with this morning. It's not try harder. What I want to leave you with is this. Um, Jesus looked to eternity as he faced his suffering, correct? He looked to eternity as he faced his suffering. And Jesus accomplished his salvation through his suffering, right? He dies on the cross, the most horrific death that anyone can imagine. He suffers in the most horrific way that anyone can imagine. Okay, we all face suffering, but none of us will face the suffering that Jesus faced. And Jesus faced this suffering for, his, for a purpose. What was his purpose? It was to accomplish salvation, correct? And Jesus dies on the cross, and on the third day, he, he, he is raised from the dead, right? And now Jesus is alive, and um, he is reigning at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, correct? Okay, Paul faced suffering, right? And Paul looked to eternity to find power to face his suffering, correct? But more specifically, Paul looked to the person and work of Christ Jesus, which made this eternity possible. And this is key here. When Paul looked at the crucifixion of Jesus, he saw his sins being paid for, which relieved his conscience before God. And when he looked to Christ's resurrection, he saw all of the claims of Jesus uh, being authenticated. Jesus really was without sin, or he wouldn't have been raised from the dead. And everything that Jesus said is true. Look, he rose from the dead. And the fact that he rose from the dead means that he's a real, live, living Savior who is able to save to the uttermost those who come to him. In other words, eternity is possible because Jesus is alive. You know, the old Gaither song that we sing once in a while just sums it up greatly. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. That's it. You see, it's because he's alive. I have the power to face this. If he weren't alive, I wouldn't hardly have the power to face this. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's a, such a cry. I mean, you look around at people that don't have this and, and how do they do it? You've got to wonder, how do they do it? How do you go into the funeral parlor when you don't have this? And you listen to people speculate about this and speculate about that. And it's awful, isn't it? The, most, the worst cries I've ever heard have been at funerals where the, the, the group was largely an unbelieving group. The cries that you hear there are awful. They're awful cries. There's no hope. Just pain. That's not that. See, as we apply the gospel to this, you see. Uh, it makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? 
Okay, we cry. We hurt. It hurts. All suffering hurts. But listen, if you're in Christ Jesus this morning, it's temporal. It's temporary. You can do it. I'll tell you why you can do it. You can do it because he's alive and he's alive and he's here to help. He can help you get through it. And his crucifixion shows us, I mean, what's going on at the crucifixion? Well, my sins are being placed on Jesus. He's taking the penalty, so it cleans my conscience. Look at his resurrection. Well, he was raised from the dead. Every, every, every promise that Jesus made is authenticated by that. And Jesus is alive. And because he's alive, I can face tomorrow. The gospel proclaims an incredible future for those in Christ Jesus. And it's a sure future because the Father is decreed in Christ, you see. This isn't speculation. This isn't guesswork. This isn't like something I just really kind of hope it's like this. No, the Father decreed it. The scriptures make that really clear that out of eternity past, the Father said, this is the way it's going to be. You can count on it. And Jesus has accomplished it. We see that he did it on the cross. He did it in his resurrection. He's reigning at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, in session with him to see that his church gets built You can count on it. This is what's going to happen, whether you believe it or not. This is the way it is. This is true reality. And it's a sure future because the Holy Spirit is bearing witness to it, isn't it? That draws on an earlier message. The Holy Spirit is bearing witness, isn't he? Is the Holy Spirit a liar? My heavens, no. My heavens, no. So we look to Christ. We look to his crucifixion. We look to his resurrection. We look to his risen life. And we are empowered to face whatever comes down the pike. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the great truths that you have given us, O Lord, teaching us how to face what what otherwise we could hardly face, Father, teaching us how to face suffering in all of its forms and manifestations. But we can face it. We can face it because you're alive. We can face it because you have risen and you have gone to prepare a place and eternity awaits us in the very near future. So we can face any suffering that comes our way. Uh, So Father, we thank you for this. And I pray, Father, that you'll help us to eternalize this, to help really begin to put this into action in our lives as we face suffering, as we face suffering in all of its kinds and all of its manifestations. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.